All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you're having a great summer. It's uh, warm days. Our youth group just got back from uh, the retreat this weekend, and uh, we're so thankful. My wife and I were kid-free the entire weekend. That was an amazing weekend. We're so thankful for all the teachers who took that burden for us. <laughs> My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and I'm honored to bring you God's Word today. We're continuing our series in the book of Proverbs, and today we're looking at just one verse, Proverbs 11.2. So if you have your Bibles on your digital device or on your actual Bibles, we're going to look at Proverbs 11.2. If you don't, it'll be projected for you overhead. This is a reading of God's Word, Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility is wisdom. Amen. Amen. As we, as we continue in our series in the book of Proverbs, we're trying to hit some of the themes that are very significant and very relevant to life. It's a book of wisdom. It's a wisdom literature that gives us God's wisdom on this side of eternity. And what I really love about the book of Proverbs is that it speaks to real life. And uh, it's not intended to be a universal truth that's true all the time, but it's wisdom for this life. And as we live it, we learn and grow and understand God's will for our lives. My battle and struggle with pride and humility, um, you can imagine in ministry, you want to seem humble, but a lot of times in ministry, we struggle with a lot of pride, a pride of our knowledge, a pride of wanting to be seen and received with a lot of acceptance and and be perhaps uh, seen or perceived as someone who's godly or is a good preacher, communicator of God's word. There were many years ago when I was in my first year of seminary, I was confronted by one of my sisters in Christ, someone I really considered like a younger sister. And as I entered to seminary, I was learning a lot of things and really thankful. And I think I was trying to express all these things that I was learning. And this sister comes over and says, hey, Jim, can I talk with you? And I'm like, sure. So we sit down in a stairwell and she looks down and she looks troubled. And she says, Jim, I just feel like you're not very teachable these days. And I have to admit, I try to keep my poker face, and I sat there with this very intense, like, discerning look, like, hmm, really? All the while, I'm thinking, what? Do you know how teachable I am? Look at all the stuff I'm learning. Look at what I'm sharing. And as I was thinking that and feeling that in my heart, although she didn't hear me say it, I was so prideful. And I didn't want to admit that probably what she saw was actually true. This and many other encounters throughout my years of ministry with marriage, with being a father, with interacting with people at church, it continues to confront the pride that exists in my life. I remember as I got married, I used to think of myself as someone who was a rather humble guy. I remember the first time my wife said, Jim, you're so prideful. And I was so angry. Do you know how humble I am? There's so many times when we are rattled and hurt or offended so easily. To help us kind of gauge and just kind of get a little temperature about our struggle with pride, I want to read a few of these evidence of pride, a list that was comprised by a lady by the name of Nancy DeMoss Wagamuth. And uh, the list was very extensive. I just want to read a few of them for you to kind of see if you can identify with me in our struggle against pride. Question one. Do you look down on those who are less educated, less affluent, or less refined, 
less successful than yourself? Do you have a judgmental spirit toward those who, do, who don't make the same lifestyle choices that you do? Oh, that person, they're not too bright. Are you quick to find fault with others and to verbalize those faults to others in the name of a discerning or analytical personality? Are you sharp with a critical tongue? Do you give undue time and attention to your physical appearance? your hair, your makeup, your clothing, your body, your weight, your body shape, trying, to, trying not to look older, hence the skinny jeans and tight shirt. <laughs> so ridiculous. Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance from others? Are you always in need to have someone pat you on the back? Are you argumentative? Do you have to have the last word? Proverbs tells us that by pride comes contention. Do you genuinely think, of your, uh, of, think that your way is the right way and you want so much for people to know how right you are? Do you have a touchy, sensitive spirit that's easily offended? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong or saying, I'm sorry? Do you have a hard time confessing your sins to God other than in generalities? Do you have a hard time expressing your real spiritual needs and struggles with others in small groups when someone is pouring out their heart and they say, what about you? You're like, yeah, I struggle. (laughs) Are you excessively shy? You know, as Asians, sometimes we have this false sense of humility where, you know, someone would say, oh, you look so good, or, man, did you lose weight? You're like, oh, no, no, no. And inside, you're like, that's right. I worked really hard for this. You better notice. Do you become defensive when you're, you're being criticized or corrected? Do you tend to be controlling of your mate, your children? Do you often complain about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job, or your church? You ask, perhaps, how is complaining pride? A lot lot of times it comes from the attitude that you think you deserve better. It shouldn't be happening to me. Do you talk about yourself too much? Do, Do you worry about what others think? And here's the last few. Is it hard for you to let others know that you need help? And then lastly, are you sitting here thinking that, man, these don't define me much at all? And this message, man, I'm going to post it on, on the internet and hopefully my friend, my spouse, others need to hear this message on pride. You know, these questions are probing because a lot of times, as I read through the entire list, there are 41, I read through it and I'm like, yep, 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 yep. (laughs) There's so many that I could see in my own life. And I think as we think about this, the issue of pride is so extensive that throughout the book of Proverbs, for example, in 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. God doesn't just dislike it. He calls it an abomination. And I think there is an essence where we understand and God, we need to understand and God wants us to understand that pride actually really hurts us, not just in our relationships with others, but with Him. 
Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And on and on, continually, through several verses, it speaks about the danger of pride. But today's verse, 11.2, when pride comes, there comes disgrace or shame. But with humility is wisdom. And I hope that we understand, we'll embrace that humility actually is wisdom. And so today we want to first look at the origin of pride and look at it from a bigger picture. Secondly, we'll look at it closer and how it manifests in an entitlement mentality of living. And then thirdly, we want to see how pride is fueled by shame and how Christ rescues us from that shame. And then we'll end with a few hints and and some helpful ideas in ways we could deal with pride and seek to live a more humble life. The first point that I would love for us to learn together uh, about pride and humility is that pride is to see ourselves as little gods, and humility is to see ourselves as God sees us. Pride opposes the first principle of wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, in the beginning chapter, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is to understand who is God and who is not. Pride wants to take that away to rob us of the understanding and the security that we find knowing that he alone is God and I'm not. It takes us back to the original understanding of what sin is. That in the Garden of Eden, that the temptation that was offered to the first man and woman was a temptation to be like God. It's not in the likeness of his loving quality or his goodness. It was to be equal with God, to know good and evil, to define good and evil like God does. It was, desi- it was a desire to become divine. This was the very sin that caused Satan to fall, and it was the very same temptation that led mankind to fall. And embedded in this sin nature that we struggle with, even as we live this pursuit of Christ and and following Christ, pride continues to creep up over and over again, and it is the very foundation from which many other sins are birthed. C.S. Lewis says this in in his quote, uh, as, as, as we read from many of his literature, he writes this, he says, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, greed, drunkenness, and all that, are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Why? Because we're not God. We're created beings. There's two categories in the universe. God, who is creator, and creation. When creation begins to confuse itself with God, we got a problem. Because it's not true. It's actually hurtful, and it actually distances us from the very Creator and God Himself. And yet the temptation to constantly be in this power, to gain power, to seek heights, heights that weren't meant for us, heights that were only meant for God, to control, to manipulate, to to do things in our own power, because we really don't have true power. And there is this discontentment of the soul until there is this reaching of whatever we want in our pleasures, in our recognition, in our namesake. Some of us, as we struggle with pride, it is this struggle with actually admitting that I am in need of God, that I need his help. 
If you're one of those personalities who have a hard time asking for help, prayer is probably not a very practiced experience in your life. Because prayer is admitting that I need help. Prayer is admitting that I fall short, that I need and I have many needs. The dependent reality is how we were created. Even in our perfection, we were created to live in fellowship with the only one who stands alone and can stand alone. To be apart from him is then to feel the emptiness and the void of what we were created to have, which is a relationship with God himself. And so sin separates us from God. Pride makes us to think that we don't need God, and it actually places ourselves in the place of God to determine life, to decide for myself, to determine good and evil on my own. Pride tries to take matters into our own hands, and therefore the word of God and prayer are often absent when pride is present. On the flip side, humility is to see ourselves as God sees us. Humility is to respond to God as God, and therefore to see ourselves in light of the fact that only He is God, only He sees all things, only He is always in control. And therefore our identity and our well-being and our security when it is rooted and seen in the light of our God and restored through salvation in Christ, can we rest and have peace? And then humility then means simply that we see, we see ourselves in need of God, we see our need of salvation, we see our struggle with sin, and therefore our need of Christ becomes real. Our identity is as broken vessels, in need of healing and grace and restoration. Humility then leads us to find the security and the rest and the joy and the peace that God had intended for us as we live in a dependent identity to the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he had sent. To remember the importance of these two things, James writes in James 4, 6, that he gives more grace And therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why? Because he will not and cannot in his loving kindness let created beings think that they're God. He will oppose you for our well-being. And that there's only room for one God in this universe, and that's him alone. And he will oppose you so that you will realize that this relationship with him as creator and creation is a healthy, true, and necessary relationship. But to the humble, he will give grace. Every time we realize our weakness, every time we realize our sins and faults, we're not confronted with opposition, but with grace. And this is the very reality that we ought to be appreciating and seeing in Christ our Lord. As Christians... The beauty of our salvation is that we realize that I am not God. I don't have control. And no matter what I try to do every day, this is fleeting. That every day I recognize and surrender myself to the only one who truly is God and Savior. And so pride is to see ourselves as little gods, but humility and truth leads us to see ourselves as God sees us. The second truth from this as we learn about pride and humility is that pride lives with a sense of entitlement and humility lives with a sense of gratitude. 
I think as we look at pride and humility, we can also see entitlement and a heart of gratitude. This passage says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. The word pride here is a, it has a root meaning that suggests that there's a boiling up and is used of arrogance of those who must have everything their own way. I will not be kicked around. I will not be pushed around. I'm going to grab it and make it my own way. The sense of entitlement in, in the same sense is this belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges and special treatment, even if it may not be that what, that's what you deserve. And so when we look at the nitty-gritty day, everyday life, this unbecoming attitude of entitlement, whenever we see it, when someone says, well, I deserve this, and I deserve that, and I don't deserve this, there's a sense with which we're like, oh, that's just not right. But every time you hear someone speak humbly, man, I'm so thankful. I know it's hard, but I'm thankful to God. You're like, wow, that's unusual. The difference is that the entitlement mentality is the inability to distinguish between privileges and rights. Privileges and rights. And as, as sinners saved by grace, when we stand before God, what rights do we really have to claim before him? I deserve, I demand, I have every right to what? Deserve or right might be equivalent with justice. I deserve justly this. And if we read the scriptures and see the truth of who we are and what we really deserve, the Bible teaches us that what we've earned in our life and our sin is death. What I deserve is death. What I receive by grace is forgiveness and eternal life. This is why the, the heart of, of, of an entitled mentality is so arrogant. Who are we to stand before God Almighty and say, I demand, I deserve, you better give me? There are times when I've met with people and they're angry at God. And I get it, I've been there. We get angry at God because we don't get what we think life is supposed to be like. We're supposed to have a healthy marriage, but our marriage is broken and hurting. God, I don't deserve this. We're supposed to have kids that are good and educated and obedient or healthy, and we don't have that. Our kid is not doing well. They're, they're, they're going through all kinds of health problems and relational issues and insecurities and nightmares, and God, I don't deserve this. We don't, what do we do to deserve this? I've asked you constantly, where are you? Why aren't you answering my prayers? I deserve my answers. And so on and so on. And we have this heart of entitlement with God. Instead, rather, we should have a heart of humility. John Piper, in his, one of his messages on pride and humility, said, what is humility? It is the opposite sense of entitlement. It is the opposite sense of entitlement where we're not sitting there saying, I deserve this. I don't deserve anything. If I, whatever I did deserve, I didn't get. And so the opposite of entitlement, I believe, is gratitude. The heart that's able to humbly be thankful for all that we have received. That what we have in life, it is a grace of God. The reason why the sin of envy and coveting is a sin is because what we're saying is, God, you didn't give me what I need. I don't have enough of everything that I should have. 
It's accusing God of being insufficient. And that's why it's such a sin. It's a grievous heart of the sin. It's the only one that's the heart of the sin, a sin of the heart. And as you think about it, gratitude then expels this idea of God's incompetency or God's lacking in inabilities, but rather appreciates all that God is and all that he's done. It's hard to draw closer to a God when you think this God is not doing his job, when he's robbing us of what we should be receiving. And so as we think about our faith, what we deserved and what we received by grace, I was always ministered to by Romans 12, verse 3, where it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In Romans 12, 3, I want you to, I want you to kind of focus in on this grace given to me. We ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Instead, we are to think of ourselves with sober judgment. The sobriety of our judgment comes when we look at the gospel. When we understand that the reason why Christ had to die such a horrible death on the cross is because that's how horrible sin is. And that was all in us. And the fact that God now poured out his wrath on his son and offers us free forgiveness and grace in life, this is an amazing gift. I received what I didn't deserve. And with sober judgment, I can look to God with thankfulness each day. It doesn't mean that we are thankful for hurts. We're thankful for pains. We're thankful for an accident. We're thankful for cancer. We're not thanking God for those things. We're thankful that even in the midst of that, He is present. The gospel never changes. He never changes. And therefore, because you are present and you are unchanging, that the promise, the end goal of what you promise in the presence of your goodness and grace for the rest of eternity is sure and it will one day come until that day I hold on to his grace every day with a heart of gratitude. Thirdly, pride feasts on self-centeredness while Christian humility feasts on uh, Christ-centeredness. Pride is fed with self-centeredness. It is the it is the consumption of me, myself, and I. I was once thinking through the Ten Commandments. And if you think about, you shall have no other gods before me. And as you continue through the list of idolatry, of his namesake, of the Sabbath, of honoring your mother and father, of murder, stealing, or adultery, speaking words that are untrue, or maybe even coveting, That all these things are about me. I want to define who God is. I want to create God in my own image. I want to decide what I do on every day, including the Sabbath day. And by the way, when it comes to parents, they don't know what they're talking about. I do. And when it comes to things like murder, if you wrong me, you are in danger. And if I want someone, even physically, I will have it. This is all about me. Every sin leads us to uh, the the foundation of pride and self-centeredness. And as we think about this, self-centeredness and pride 
will lead to shame. It was a friend of mine, he was driving many years ago, and his brother's a pastor, so he borrowed his car and he's driving, and he told me this story. It was, it was both funny and sad. He's driving his brother's car, and as he's driving, this car behind him starts honking relentlessly. Honk, honk, honk. And he's like, oh my God, what's wrong with this guy? He kept honking, honking. So finally he got so angry because there was nothing he was doing wrong. He flicks the bird, right, at this person in the, in the windshield. And this car comes around and tries to pull up next to him. And when, he, when that car pulls up, he was going to let that driver have it. And when the car pulls up, it's this old lady. And she's waving her finger at him. And she says, young man, take that sticker off your car. And then he realized he was driving his brother's car that said, honk if you love Jesus. When he told me that, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> sucks to be you. <laughs> yes, shame followeth pride. There's so many times when we might have said something, assuming with assumptions come such an embarrassment and shame. In an article from Psychology Today entitled, Why Pride is Nothing to be Proud of, it writes, Pride is often driven by our poor self-worth and shame. We feel so badly about ourselves that we often compensate by feeling superior. We look for others' flaws as a way to conceal our own, and we relish criticizing others as a defense against recognizing our own shortcomings. It prevents us from really seeing ourselves clearly because we're so consumed with ourselves. We're not able to see ourselves with sobriety. Rather, we see ourselves with a very tainted window and glass. One of the things that I, I realized about my marriage with my wife Jennifer and many marriages is in the relationship of marriage, it's so important to know each other's love language, but there's another language that we often struggle with and don't know how to speak, which is the language of apology. How to say I'm sorry. And I don't know if your home is like this, but sometimes in our home, when we struggle, when we have an argument, it's hard to say I'm sorry. It's hard to stand before that person and admit that I did something wrong. We want to stand there and act like, what? You start, because you did wrong. You know how hard it is to start with, I'm sorry. And some of us struggle with accepting the I'm sorry, right? Because once the person says, I'm sorry, you're like, no, that's not good enough. <laughs> like, what? Then forget it. And I can't tell you how many times we had to learn over and over again the importance, even struggling today, to this very day, what it means to have the humility to say sorry first. And the hardest question that my wife asks after I say I'm sorry, she's like, why are you sorry? <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, I don't know how to answer that question because I'm really not sorry. I just don't want to fight anymore. <laughs> And all the men are laughing because we all like know what that means. So how do we fight against pride? How do we fight against pride and live humble lives? There's a quote by C.S. Lewis, and he defined humility this way. He said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. And in this, there's a great article uh, in, in the Gospel Coalition uh, regarding fasting of yourself and feasting on Christ. And 
In this article by Eric Raymond uh, in The Path to Humility, he quotes Philippians 2.3 and he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And he writes pretty simple verse. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Got it. But how do I learn this humility? In short, he says, Paul says, feast on Christ. In the following verse, he backs up this semi-truck of Christ's infinite merit and dumps it all in front of the porch of the Philippian church. And there it is for the brothers and sisters to read. He then he shows us the depths of Christ's humble service. And he quickly shows us that no one could ever give up more to serve more unworthy people. And we are the ones who have been served. Therefore, we are to likewise serve in this humility. When I was going through seminary, one of, the, one of my sermons that I had to prepare was from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. I got a chance to meditate on those four verses for about three weeks. By the end of the three weeks, and I had to preach that in front of our preaching class, I want to tell you, Every time I thought about that verse, as I committed it to memory, it brought tears. May I read it for you this morning? It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I want to pause and I want you to understand, if there was anyone in the universe who had every right to stand and demand his, ju- his majesty, his worship, and his authority, it was Jesus Christ. But the scripture says that that was something he did not consider something to be held on to be, to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. The father didn't force him to empty it. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Not only did he take on the form of a servant, not only did he t- become man, God to man. God Creator of the universe became creation. And I don't know if we've ever spent enough time to ponder and think of the huge chasm that God had crossed on our behalf. But not only that, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That when the Son of God came to the earth, his life was not majestic. It wasn't as a king, it wasn't as a ruler, it was as a servant. It was as a man, a humble son of a carpenter. And not only did he experience a short life, he experienced death. Not just any death. The kind of death that in all of human history was the most shameful, painful, just horrid way for a person to die. This... This attitude of Christ, Paul says, have among yourselves. It's yours in Christ Jesus. But I love that the passage there doesn't end with Christ's humility. But therefore it says, because Christ humbled himself, because scriptures and kingdom truth says, if you try to exalt yourself, God will humble you. But if you humble yourself, he will exalt you. And therefore, verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, so that as he humbled himself, God exalted him and lifted him to the highest name. And that is why you and I come here to worship the name of this humble servant God who became man, who died on Calvary's cross, who was the only person who shouldn't have died because he had no sin, and yet he died on our behalf. He experienced our shame. Do you realize that one day when we stand before the judgment throne of God, we won't stand for our sin? We should have. We should have stood before God's throne and God should have listed all the sins of our life, all the careless words we did. He should have gone through every one of them and our head should have been down and then our words should have been, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But instead we don't because he did. And this is why we worship. This is why we are so driven to understand the agony of pride and the joy of humility. Because this humility that is found in Christ is a safe and secure place to be. It is who we are. It is an identity given freely by His grace. And so to live in this humility, as we find ourselves fasting from ourselves and feasting on Christ, I found a few thoughts that I agree with. And John Maxwell, who's an author on leadership, Wrote an, uh, wrote an article called The Problem of Pride, and in it he gave four suggestions as to what we can do to overcome pride and live a humble life. I want to share these with you, and the first one is to recognize and admit your pride. To recognize and admit your pride. This is the first step toward humility because it is the practice of confession. It is to agree with God that I have sinned, that I have these desires and these things going on in my head and my heart, and I need to continually admit them. He writes here, quoting C.S. Lewis, about acknowledging pride. He said, quote, If anyone would like to acquire humility, I think I can tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. This big step is so important that nothing can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, you're very conceited. You, you will not solve a problem that you do not know exists or will not admit exists. So it begins with seeing it, admitting it, and agreeing with God that I struggle, that this is what I am, this is my heart. And I love that we get to practice that every week on Sundays as we confess our sins together. The second one is to express your gratitude. An entitled heart finds it hard to be thankful, but a humbled heart begins to realize that no matter what we're going through, we can find a heart of gratitude. Henry Ward Beecher says, A proud man is seldom grateful, a grateful man, for he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. There's something to say when it says thank you. We take our eyes off of ourselves and we look to the blessings. We look to his presence. We look to the gospel that will never change or be taken away. The third one, this is where it's relevant with fasting self. When, when, I, read that, uh, when I read that article of fasting self and feasting on Christ, I thought, how do you fast from yourself? I know how to fast from food. I don't like that very much. I was like, how do you, feast, how do you fast from yourself? The way you fast from yourself is servanthood. 
Serve someone else. Think less of yourself, think more of others. This is what Paul said, right? That you are to consider others before you consider yourself. It doesn't mean you don't think about yourself, but you're constantly thinking of others. And if you ever practice this, you'll begin to realize that self begins to complain a lot. This is unfair. What about me? In our home, um, one of the one of the spiritual disciplines that we're practicing as a family is serving one another. That's it's, it's very important because what started to develop in our home with my wife and children is after every meal we're starting to clean up, and as we're cleaning up, my kids would just pick up their plate and their spoon or fork or chopsticks, and they would go to the kitchen. And I'm like, Josh, can you help me out? He's like, That's not mine. I'm like, I didn't say it's yours. I said, Can you help us clean up? He's like, Why? It's not mine. I'm like, Oh my gosh! All right. So we're going to do, we're going to serve each other. We're going to help each other. We're going to constantly be about others. And man, self complains all the time. Because we don't like fasting on ourselves. We like it when we're served. We don't like to serve others. Anyone who says, I I love serving others. (laughs) I don't know. I wonder. (laughs) But Christ said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is the heart of our Lord. That is the one, the reality that we have been served. And because we have been served, because we have been so loved, that fasting from ourselves is to serve others. And as we do, we feast on Christ. We feast on the fact that we've been served. We feast on the fact that every time self struggles with the serving and fasting of self, we look and we embrace Christ. We feast on the fact that every time I think that I deserve something, I remember that I don't. The last one comes with laugh at yourself. Accepting our imperfections and rejoicing in the only perfection that deserves rejoicing, which is in Christ our Lord. You know, um, I think I'm a pretty uh, witty, uh, funny guy. People call it dad jokes. Uh, People think, they confuse it with uh, uh, just a lack of sense of humor, or just, they don't see wit. Uh, Wit and humor, there's a fine line, and the intelligent see it as wit, the unintelligent see it as lack of humor. (laughs) Can I tell you, uh, there are times when I try to be uh, humorous and I say witty things and people are like, what? And my son, my daughter give me the most ugliest faces. They're like, dad, not funny. Dad, that was lame. I'm like, you're lame. (laughs) In my own arrogance, it's hard. But now as I get older, I realize it's just funny. It's just funny that you guys don't get it. It's funny that you just don't see the incredible wit (laughs) and sense of humor. There's an old saying, Blessed are they that laugh at themselves, for they shall never cease to be entertained. (laughs) Every time I look at myself, both in the mirror and in my heart, I laugh. (laughs) Beloved, we are loved, we are valued, we are embraced, we are secured in Christ. That's a reason to rejoice. Not a reason to be proud. Pride comes from the emptiness of the soul, trying to fill it our own ways. Where the gospel reminds us we are filled, and we should be filled every day. And the way we do that is by looking to Him 
and remembering, I don't really deserve any of this. And I'm so thankful that I have anything, including Jesus. I hope in this we rejoice and we celebrate his goodness by not living in the folly of pride, but living in the wisdom of humility. Let's pray. Before I pray and as our worship team makes their way up here, I don't want to lose this moment or rob you of this moment to come before God. And if you feel the Spirit of God is convicting you of pride and lack of gratitude, living us with a sense of entitlement, would you join with me? I know Pastor Andrew led us in a time of repentance and confession and an assurance of pardon, but would you take this time and just speak to God? And as you speak to him, and as you think about this, and as our worship team leads us in a responsive song, would you remember to feast on Christ and feast on his goodness and feast on the promise and the price that he paid for us? Why don't you take this moment and meet with our Lord?